Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend, and no matter where you live in the world, I hope all of you have had a good start to your week. Hard to believe that uh, this week is our last full week of uh, January 2023. You know, I don't know where the time has gone, but I could definitely say that the new year has started off quick. But I do know that uh, while we don't have control over how quick it starts, we've got to make the most of each day uh, that we have on on this uh, planet uh, because uh, we're not guaranteed next week. Uh, we might not even be guaranteed tomorrow, but we've got to do everything we can to, to relish every uh, minute we have. Uh, I was saddened by, like so many of you all in America, including elsewhere around the world who uh, learned about another um, shooting that occurred in, a, in a Monterey Park, uh, California, right outside of Los Angeles. You know, I've probably said this before from other uh, podcast uh, topic discussions, so pardon me if I mention it again. It, you know, uh, for one, when we hear of massacres today, it almost becomes a norm, a, a tolerated norm, a norm that um, has no boundaries. But when I think of massacre in early colonial American times, I, I always think of the Boston Massacre of 1770. For one, there had never been uh, a loss of life in one night where four or five people died. Usually, if four or five people died in one night, or in one day, rather, in colonial times, it had to do with um, a disease outbreak that pertained to a particular region or within a community. But to think in 1770 that a massacre occurring, regardless of the circumstances where more than one person lost their lives by gun violence in 1770, that was just totally unheard of. But what do you know? Three centuries later, it's the norm. So, you know, we still have to wonder, uh, what is it going to take to end these massacres and... What is it going to take for people to be held more accountable for their actions? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get into politics here, people. I'm not. But I just have to remind myself that um, if I had been alive and living in Boston and witnessed uh, people uh, get shot on the night of March the 5th of 1770, yes, I know both sides were at fault. Yes, the protesters were harassing the British uh, soldiers that fi ended up firing into the crowd. But still, to me, uh, witnessing four or five men, uh, or four or five, yes, four or five men die, because uh, the victims were all men, but to see those uh, men die was would have been tragic. But at the same time, knowing that that many uh, individuals died from means of gun violence or what we would think of as unusual circumstances of dying in 1770 would have been just totally unheard of. But we, but if uh, people living in 18th century times were to be alive in today's uh, world, they would be floored by the amount of violence that uh, seems to occur daily and, and a norm that uh, has no boundaries. So that is just something we must be reminded of that, um, yes, violence has been around, sadly, since the beginning of time, but it has escalated over time and throughout the centuries, and 
to me, um, when when I hear of these uh, tragic uh, events, you know, I have to be reminded of the fact that, you know, we can't take life for granted, and we've got to be very vigilant of our surroundings. We, you know, we don't need to be, we shouldn't have to live in fear day in and day out, but we've got to be very vigilant. Uh, but again, I'm not trying to engage in anything political with this, but it's just a reminder of the times that we live in. But uh, let's focus on uh, what we ought to be focusing on. And I was very pleased to see that so many of you are very eager about wanting to learn more about the tragedy of Benedict Arnold. So where do we go from here in this uh, podcast uh, segment? Well, I will tell you this much. We will uh, start out by discussing what goes on in late 1777, because we need to understand um, what happens in late 1777 will not only have a profound impact on Benedict Arnold while he is serving in the American Revolutionary War in terms of the greater cause behind securing um, political independence from uh, England, but how... um, but what he endures also is a uh, painful reminder of what he uh, dealt with uh, growing up as a, a child. In other words, we're going to uh, learn in this uh, podcast segment that Benedict Arnold's childhood may not have necessarily been 100% bad. In other words, it actually started out good, but yet sadly it took... Um, a couple of misfortunes that led to a complete uh, 360 reversal, which uh, Arnold himself worked tirelessly to overcome, but yet as uh, new settings emerged, like like being in the American Revolutionary War, most notably where we will be talking about here shortly, we will see that those setbacks never really escaped him. So let's start off with our uh, first uh, lead-off question for this uh, segment to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by uh, Joyce Lee Malcolm. What was taking place center stage on October the 7th, 1777? Well, for starters, the Battle of Saratoga in upstate New York had been taking place since combat fighting action first began on September the 19th. Let's keep in mind, folks, that when a battle does happen, it's not—it's usually not a one-day um, event. There has to be a lot of coordination ahead of time and coordination on how you're going to go about attacking the enemy, how you might be able to surprise the enemy if you're able to outflank um, one side of the um, enemy's um, army. And uh, in a much later podcast segment, uh, I will tell you this now that we will eventually um, revisit Saratoga and uh, learn more about uh, the greater strategies behind uh, the battle itself. But uh, for right now, yes, uh, the Battle of Saratoga is what's taking uh, place center stage up north in the northern campaign of the American Revolutionary War. It originally began on September the 19th of 1777, but... uh, but uh, the Battle of Saratoga, uh, there were uh, technically there were uh, two uh, battles of Saratoga. So uh, secondly, a second Battle of Saratoga at uh, Bemis Heights began 
ensuing when British grenadiers opened fire on Patriot forces, and this would have been on October the 7th of 1777. The um, opening round of firing by the British grenadiers would have taken place between the time frame of 2 and 2.30 p.m. However, the first phase on September the 7th of 1777 lasted only one hour, resulting in British General John Burgoyne losing nearly 400 men. To lose nearly 400 men, either killed or wounded, in one hour's fight, to me that seems like a rout. It seems like to me that maybe the Continental Army had found ways to outflank Burgoyne's forces. In other words, hit, hit them from a, a different angle uh, out of nowhere, a surprise attack, ambush, to where either Burgoyne's left or right flank had no means of protection, and once the enemy came right at them, um, they, were, uh, pretty much, um, they were pretty much expected to be crushed without any uh, backup. Third, uh, prior and after the first phase of the fighting began, Patriot forces got an extra boost from someone unexpected, being none other than Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold had defied orders. He had defied orders from his uh, superior commanding officer, whom we will learn uh, briefly about uh, shortly. But Arnold defied orders from his superior commanding officer and led a Patriot chase into the open battlefield, uncontrolled. In other words, this was the, the rally that the troops needed. They needed an extra boost of encouragement. They needed some extra bolster of inspiration. Sure, they were holding their ground, but they just needed a, an extra bit of push to get them over whatever um, hurdle was still uh, in their way. So, yes, Benedict Arnold is leading this chase, inspiring the Patriots out into the open battlefield, uncontrolled. It was almost as if, for Benedict Arnold, this mission, this act of defying his superior commanding officer's orders, maybe it, for him it was victory or death. That's just me, but you almost have to wonder, is this victory or death for Benedict Arnold? Well, while in the midst of Benedict Arnold's leading the Patriot chase into the open battlefield, uncontrollable um, emotions, the British, a group of British soldiers who have uh, partaken in what's called um, volley, an act of volley, that is when, um, when a fire volley happens, that's when you have um, soldiers lined up side by side firing, and by firing a volley, their intentions are to knock as many other men down from the opposite side of the field. If soldiers aren't lined up side by side when firing, you're not going to be able to get a very good uh, range of accuracy. However, uh, the British soldiers that fired their volley did meet success. The horse Benedict Arnold was riding on got hit. And not only did this horse get hit by the volley, or rather by the fire of volley, 
Benedict Arnold himself got hit. He got hit in the leg. That not just he not only did he just get hit in the leg, folks, he got um, the injuries he sustained led to a broken leg. And the broken leg, folks, or rather Arnold's broken leg, was attributed to his horse, whom had been shot along with falling on Arnold in the midst of the American Patriot forces capturing a key British redoubt. A redoubt, in case some of you aren't familiar with, that is a um, what we would think of as a fortified post. So here, Benedict Arnold is leading the what you call the last hurrah or that hurrah that is needed to break the enemy lines and he's you know risking it all i mean i guess we could say in a sense he really is risking it all for his country here but his but the broken leg that he sustained was a result of his horse not only having been shot but the horse falling on arnold i can't imagine you know it's one thing to be shot but here you are riding on a horse and your horse gets shot you get shot as well. I mean, it's not like driving a car where maybe we can hit the brakes and stop. I mean, Arnold is falling. Arnold gets basically thrown off the horse, but the horse falls on him. But Arnold's not the same person. I mean, I don't think anybody would be if they um, if they sustained an injury like this. However, you know, Arnold obviously is lying in agony. One officer does approach him, being Captain Henry Dearborn. He approached Arnold and asked where he had been hit. Ar Benedict Arnold's reply is the following, in quotes, In the same leg. If that's not awkward, or if that's not surprising enough, how about the next remark that Arnold makes that will probably be mentioned again somewhere else down the road, when we learn more about the Greater Saratoga Campaign in another podcast segment for another time. But the response here is something that must not um, be taken lightly. It must be something that um, we should be reminded of. So this, the following, the second response Benedict Arnold um, said to uh, Captain Henry Dearborn is quoted as follows. I wish it had been my heart. Pretty strong to say, I wish it had been my heart. Well, why do you think Benedict Arnold wished that he had been hit in his heart? Well, Benedict Arnold knew deep down inside, had he been shot directly in the heart, it would have meant a greater likelihood of dying right on the battlefield and ultimately becoming a martyr. Okay, is when we think of martyred, what do we think of? Do we think of um, heroism? Sure. So, for those of you who might not be familiar, familiar with the term martyr, uh, a martyr is someone who dies for a cause they believe is justified, while in the midst of enduring, in the case for Benedict Arnold, internal sufferings, brought about by circumstances beyond their own personal control. Okay, well, why don't we learn about one of these uh, internal uh, sufferings right now? 
Okay, uh, whom was uh, Benedict Arnold's superior commanding officer throughout the Saratoga battle campaign? Well, I can tell you this much. It wasn't George Washington. How about a general by the name of Horatio Gates? He's often been, got, he's often been given the nickname Granny Gates. He's about 50 years old, which is considered old age by 1777 standards, because it is fair to say that most people don't make it to the age of 50. But if you have made it to the age of 50, you have lived technically a long life. It's not so much that Horatio Gates is 50 years old, but many um, below him, you know, just everyday ordinary soldiers and probably a, a few officers below him, it would be fair to say that they find probably find Horatio Gates very difficult to work with. I can tell you all more here in a moment. General Gates was one whom could be best described as jealous to being vindictive, where he showed a strong desire for revenge. Horatio Gates was one of those officers who was resentful of anyone being that of, you know, an ordinary soldier, that of any other officer um, above or below him who's, uh, who had achieved success. It might be fair to say that perhaps General Horatio Gates could be seen as a crab in a barrel. I've often had to remind myself that sometimes in life, you know, if someone is labeled a crab in a barrel, what that, for one, what it means is that the individual's not happy with himself, and two, they are always resentful of everyone else's successes around them to where they will go resort to any other measure to uh, bring down those whom have succeeded, as well as finding ways to hold back those whom are currently doing whatever it takes to elevate themselves to, uh, say, escape from from no longer being in poor status to perhaps being in middle-class status. In other words, maybe is it fair to say that for those who might be considered crab-in-a-barrel status, that maybe they're just not the type of people type of people who want to help themselves. It could be possible, but we should also keep in mind that there are those whom have succeeded in life, but yet they seem to not uh, have a problem in holding everyone else back whom wants to, um, whom, whom have a burning desire to want to make more out of themselves. Is it fair to say that that's what Benedict Arnold was trying to do? Is it fair to say that maybe Benedict Arnold was trying to lend Horatio Gates a hand? I, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe Benedict Arnold's intent was to get Horatio Gates to, to think outside the box. Well, I, do, I can tell you this much, that um, Benedict Arnold at Saratoga before October 7th of 1777, before he was shot, he had led Patriot forces to victory at Freeman's Farm, which was an open field located northwest of Bemis Heights, belonging to a loyalist in John Freeman. Arnold was considered a hero at Freeman's Farm, given he helped direct Patriot forces into proper positioning in preparation for British frontal assaults to leading some of the advanced charges 
before getting summoned back to headquarters by General Gates himself. I tell you, it just seems like General Gates doesn't like Benedict Arnold, but at the same time, if if it was John Smith who had um, led Patriot forces to victory at, Fre at Freeman's Farm, I think it's fair to say that General Gates would have had a problem with John Smith. There again, it, it's probably fair to say that Horatio Gates really cares only about himself, but if he does care about anyone else, those officers or individuals would have to be on his level. If not, then do you think Horatio Gates is going to care? I hate to say this, but probably not. And this should serve as a reminder that during the American Revolutionary War that there were officers from within the inner circle of the Continental Army competing for top-level positions. They were vying to get Congress's attention um, for, uh, what do you call it, they were, they were going above and beyond to gain uh, approval and recognition from uh, members of Congress because those who wanted to serve in the Continental Army, yes, they could have that opportunity, but depending upon their rank and status, they, many of them had to go through Congress and, it, and I'll tell you this now, but I will mention it again um, in another episode, but I think it's fair to say now that Congress is micromanaging the war. In other words, Congress has committees left and right. Congress can summon in an officer whenever the body feels like doing so and uh, take something out of context and perhaps uh, go about conducting uh, court-martial hearings. So in other words, you know, Congress, you know, this is the first uh, real test of America's survival as a nation. Here we are, just this young little republic, or, we, well, not even perhaps a republic, but a makeshift republic, going head-to-toe against the world's mightiest uh, military um, force, but yet there are so many um, curveballs from within. You know, we've got a, a Congress that's micromanaging the war. We've got officers who um, are in this I, me, myself world. Yes, they may care about wanting to defeat the British, but it's all about them. It's all about seeking personal glorification. For George Washington... It's about us, we, ourselves. He doesn't have time for this I, me, myself crap. Pardon me, but it, but it is true. If, you, if you're going to serve with General Washington, just remember, it is not I, me, myself. It's us, we, ourselves. Why is Saratoga so crucial? Well, for Sarat the reason one of the reasons why Saratoga is crucial if, well, if we look at it from a British and American um, perspective points, that'll probably help us out better. Saratoga is crucial from, from the British uh, standpoint because for the British, the objective under General John Burgoyne was to separate New York from New England. The Continental Army's objective sought to prevent the British from breaking through and advancing onward south to Albany, New York's modern-day capital. Remember, folks, in 1777, New York's capital is in New York City, or what we now know as New York City. 
British forces going into, into the Saratoga battle were in dire need of victory as their numbers were declining in the northern campaign and the change of season being winter is just around the corner. Winter marked a time of rest per European protocol standards of fighting. I mean, and that was the case back then. But a year before, at the end of 1776, the British got a rude awakening when George Washington's, um, what was left of Washington's Continental Army, crossed the Delaware River and launched a surprise attack on the uh, Hessian out on the Hessian post in Trenton, and Washington and his uh, what was left of the uh, Continental Army um, captured nearly a thousand Hessian troops. But we must keep in mind that uh, normally um, even the Continental Army would not have fought during the winter season, but Washington was in a no-win situation. He had to. Um, he uh, wrestled with the decision, but he knew that if he didn't go forward with it, that the uh, cause for independence would be completely extinguished. So his mission was victory or death. And what do you know? Victory prevailed. And because victory prevailed, that's why the, Re the American Revolutionary War lived on to see not only just another day, but multiple other days, including Saratoga. Did Benedict Arnold wave off assistance even as the con even as Continental Army officers and soldiers came right over to help him after initially getting shot? Believe it or not, folks, yes. But Benedict Arnold refused all assistance. He was intent on staying put in the thick of the action. He was praising troops left and right who kept on going forward. Whom Arnold, whom Arnold knew were going out there onto the battlefield as a result of Arnold's leadership. And because of Arnold's leadership, Continental forces ultimately did prevail. Now, Horatio Gates sent out another officer to um, stop Arnold from performing unauthorized duties. It wasn't Captain Henry Dearborn. It was Major John Armstrong. Major John Armstrong, talk about being ignorant here. I don't really think for Major General John Armstrong, or Major John Armstrong, pardon me, I don't really think he probably cared that Benedict Arnold had been hit. I don't think he cared if, Benedict Ar if, a, if a horse was either on Benedict Arnold or right next to Benedict Arnold, given the severity of Arnold's uh, wounds. Bottom line is, Major John Armstrong de demanded that Benedict Arnold return back to uh, camp immediately, given that he had um, performed unauthorized duties. Well, Benedict Arnold refused to listen to Armstrong's orders. However, standing nearby, Asa Bray's Connecticut Militia Company helped get Arnold on what is called a bedding, or what we would think of as a bed stretcher. Asa Bray's, Asa Bray's Connecticut Militia Company were the ones that uh, performed a noble deed by carrying Benedict Arnold off of his bed stretcher onto, um, they carried him onto a bed stretcher, 
and transported him to a field hospital where not long after he would journey three days down the Hudson River to Albany, 50 miles away. Think about this, folks. Three days. Where was he going? Well, he was going to be going... He, The ultimate destination was to a, um, a military hospital. It wasn't just a, an ordinary military hospital. This was an overcrowded military hospital that comprised of injured and dying soldiers on each side, Continental Army and British. So basically... It's fair to say that maybe this was the closest uh, hospital where Benedict Arnold could go to get better care, but it was also perhaps designed as a means to get him away from General Horatio Gates and from, uh, say, Major John Armstrong. And anyone else in this little inner circle of General Gates's who did not like Benedict Arnold. As Benedict Arnold lied in pain 50 miles south of Saratoga, General Horatio Gates went about conducting the terms of surrender, including taking full credit for, a vic for the victory in general. Now, I will tell you all this, we will need to focus more about Saratoga at a later time, but we're almost done uh, talking about the Saratoga uh, piece of this uh, podcast segment, but but it will be important to discuss more about it at a later time because, um, yes, I know I may have mentioned that Horatio Gates is taking full credit for victory, but some of you, if not some of you, a good portion of you all are probably beginning right now to think to yourselves, wait a minute, where was Horatio Gates when Benedict Arnold led this charge out onto the field, giving um, the Continental troops the extra boost of morale they needed to go about leading this final assault and uh, driving back the opposition to where the Continentals were able to prevail. Where was this General Horatio Gates all this time? That's going to be the big uh, $100 question, but it will have to be for another time. I will tell you this much right now that um, General Horatio Gates and Benedict Arnold are two officers with totally opposite strategical leadership skills. One officer was domineering. Would it be fair to say that that's more than likely Horatio Gates? Yes. While the other strove for admiration amongst soldiers below whom needed a guiding hand when, going, when the going itself got tough on the battlefield against the enemy. And who is that officer, folks? none other than, than Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold spent multiple months recovering from injuries sustained at Saratoga. The surgeons at the military hospital, hospital in Albany favored amputating Arnold's leg. Benedict Arnold did not go along with this, folks. He opposed amputation. Why did he oppose amputation? He knew it would leave him a permanent invalid not being able to physically take care of himself and having to rely upon someone else or others to physically take care of him 24 hours a day. Also, too, folks, Benedict Arnold was already a widower by the time the Saratoga campaign had emerged. He has three young boys to, to care for as well. 
he chose instead to have his left leg set. And folks, uh, I will have to tell you this here, uh, the medicine in, in 18th century, you know, they may not have known as much stuff as, as they do now. And we, we still have to give doctors credit for doing what they were able to uh, go about doing um, in 18th century time because, you know, they did the best they could with what they had available. So we can't uh, criticize them for not trying. But what happened here was that given that Benedict Arnold did not want his uh, left leg amputated, the doctors went about um, having his left leg set. Okay, folks, so this is the leg that had that Benedict Arnold had uh, endured uh, other problems with. Um, because remember, I'd said a while back when uh, Captain uh, Henry Dearborn asked him which leg it had been, he said it was the same one, meaning now his left leg. So the doctors uh, went about setting his left leg, but it was done so improperly. The left leg was two inches, five centimeters shorter than the right leg. I can't imagine just how uncomfortable that was. And the fact of the matter is that Arnold survived the procedure. Think about it, folks. No anesthetics to knock you out. No, uh, I, I can't imagine seeing this procedure take place without any anesthetics. But I often have to remind myself, even when visiting uh, Colonial Williamsburg's apothecary shop, I just have to be reminded that people back in the 18th century times really had to learn how to tough it out. And they did. And I got to give them credit for it. And I believe that's what Benedict Arnold himself did here. Now, um, February 23rd, 1778, Benedict Arnold did arrive back at his family home in Hingham, Massachusetts. He did rejoin the Continental Army at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, three months later in May of 1778. He did get a, a hero's welcome, and there were um, a good number of uh, troops at Valley Forge whom had uh, been involved in the Saratoga campaign who um, applauded his return. Now, as great as that was, uh, Benedict Arnold did participate along with um, along with all the soldiers at Valley Forge and officers, uh, other officers, I should say. They all participated in the first recorded oath of allegiance. What do you think this oath of allegiance would have been, folks? Loyalty to the United States. I wonder if somewhere down the road we could be looking at a tragic turn of misfortune. Well, after all, the title to our book, or to our book topic discussion is The Tragedy of Benedict Arnold, but the fact of the matter is that Benedict Arnold partook in an oath of allegiance swearing, meaning that he would have loyalty to the United States. And maybe it's fair to say that when you, by having loyalty that you will be loyal to your country not only in the best of times, but in the most trying of times. We shall see what happens. Benedict Arnold, though, was hospitalized for four months. He endured pain, uncontrolled impatience, anger, frustration. He couldn't remove all the inner struggles given he had so valiantly gone above and beyond to perform heroic deeds prior to and including the Saratoga campaign 
only to be stripped by other officers within whom Arnold himself could no longer trust. He didn't want to be reduced. In other words, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to see his stature reduced in fighting, not just so much with fighting on the battlefield, but for fighting a noble cause, being that of independence from England. Can you blame Benedict Arnold? No. But yet, this is how um, our piece for the uh, podcast segment regarding Saratoga for this episode will end. So, you know, it's one thing to be in a hospital, but for four months, dealing with uncontrolled agony, anger, bitter disappointment over how you've been treated, wondering where does the future go? Okay, well, we did learn just a few minutes ago that he is, that in May of 1778, he does come back and he does receive a, a great applause for a return. But there again, we have to wonder, is there going to be something else that will offset this fella? We shall see. So now we're going to focus on um, Benedict Arnold's early um, childhood years. So here we go. What came about on January 3rd, 1741? Benedict Arnold arrived into the world. He was born to parents Hannah and Benedict Arnold. Okay, so Benedict's father is Benedict Arnold as well. The young, uh, Benedict, young Benedict Arnold was born in the town of Norwich, uh, which is located in eastern Connecticut. So he is a New Englander. Norwich, Connecticut was a successful inland port town. So in other words, it wasn't right it, it, in other words, it w wasn't right along the uh, heart of the uh, coastal waterway, but it was uh, inland from the heart of the coastal uh, waterway. So uh, Norwich is, was a successful inland port town. It was it made up of six villages. Norwich uh, was known as a hub for shipbuilding, including being the town whose land was once occupied by the Mohegan Indians. Norwich was home to many fine homes in estates, with some having river views, just like what we see in today's time with uh, houses right along the river having some of the most spectacular views uh, money could buy. Hannah Arnold, uh, whom was Benedict's mother, believe it or not, she had been previously married before to a gentleman named Absalom King, who was a well-to-do merchant and captain whom just so happened to work with uh, Benedict Arnold's father. Sadly, Absalom died at sea in September of 1732. And come November 8th of 1733, Hannah and Benedict Arnold married. Hannah belonged to some very well-to-do prominent uh, Connecticut families, such as the Watermen, but most of all the Lathrops whom were the oldest and wealthiest of Norwich, Connecticut families. Connections are very, very vital, especially if you want to be successful in society, but sometimes even having, having family connections in times of, say, a family crisis, which we will soon learn about, might play an even more uh, vital role. The elder Benedict Arnold took over Absalom King's business, being Hannah's uh, first husband's, 
and he made a large fortune, or not just a large fortune, but large fortunes to where he went about building a fine estate for the family. He went on to hold various community positions, such as constable. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what a constable is, that is a that was an 18th and 19th century term as uh, for being a debt collector. Uh, the the elder Arnold was also a selectman, which which refers to a member of a local government board uh, within a New England town. He was also a militia captain. With all these uh, unique um, positions that uh, that young Benedict's father um, held in his uh, held in the town of Norwich, he went on to become Captain Arnold. As young Benedict Arnold got older. He would go about on voyages with his father during the summertime. He partook in the Atlantic crossings to visiting ports from northward to Canada and far south into the Caribbean. Journeys, these journeys alone were seen as good beginnings to, potential, to the possible potential of a career at sea. Young Benedict Arnold, believe it or not folks, was the only son whom survived past infancy. He sadly lost two brothers whom died before the age of three. He had three sisters named Elizabeth, Hannah, and Mary. You know, it's interesting that um, Benedict's father is named Benedict. Benedict's mother is named Hannah. Benedict has a sister named Hannah. You know, there, we should be reminded that even in colonial times, um, parents named their children after them. I also know that it was a common practice in colonial times for children to be baptized just days after being born, as parents weren't sure how long their children would live. So many children died in infancy back then, folks, um, and not every child lived to be the age of five, or in, some, in a lot of instances, not every child lived to be the age of ten. We have to be constantly constantly reminded that it was a very common practice for for um, families to have ten or twelve children. If they had twelve children, the overall intentions were to hope that maybe six or seven would live to adulthood. In other words, they would make it well past um, tw the age of twenty-five and maybe live to be in their fifties or sixties, which would have been considered old age for the time. But one thing I, I have said before, and I'll say it again, is that if a child did make it past the age of 10, he or she really was, in a sense, considered to be an adult. Um, he or she had built up a, a strong immune system to where they were able to ward off um, common infectious diseases of the day. Why is Canterbury, Connecticut, an important connection for young Benedict Arnold? Well, in 1750, in 1752, at the age of 11, Benedict was ready for further schooling advancement, and he went aboard with Reverend James Cogswell, who mentored young boys in classic topics from Latin, biblical studies, mathematics, history. It would be fair to say that uh, families who could afford to send their young um, sons to um, a boarding school, they were well off. The average middling family would not have been so fortunate, especially if they're only making 12 pounds uh, a year in terms of uh, income. 
Many of Reverend Cogswell's students were intended to go onward onto Yale College in New Haven, Connecticut. But young Benedict Arnold wasn't, but for young Benedict Arnold himself, this um, aspiration or this um, envisioned um, goal was not intended to become a fortune. So in other words, for Benedict Arnold, it might be fair to say that that um, that the plans of him going on to Yale College simply weren't meant to be, but we've got to figure out why it, it wasn't meant to be. All right, let's go to 1753. 1753 was a terrible year uh, for Connecticut, and perhaps it, uh, and for other maybe neighboring New England New England colonies, but I know for Connecticut. 1753 saw a bad plague encounter upon uh, Norwich, diphtheria. Diphtheria is a condition where thick gray membrane covers the throat and tonsils, resulting in sore throat to difficulty with breathing. The disease is spread through respiratory droplets from a cough or a sneeze. And once someone has um, been exposed to the symptoms, those symptoms will appear within, in, within an, in an individual's body within two to five days. Young Benedict's family was affli afflicted with diphtheria. Benedictus, young Benedict focus, folks is still at uh, Reverend Cogswell's uh, boarding school in Canterbury. So he is safe, believe it or not, but his, the rest of his family isn't. Sadly, on August 30th, 1753, his eight-year-old sister, Mary Arnold, died. Eight years old, folks. Eighteen days later, on, sep on September the 18th of 1753, four-year-old Elizabeth Arnold died. I can't imagine a family losing two children in, ju in just shy of a three-week span. They died from a, a terrible um, outbreak of diphtheria. Ben young Benedict and his sister Hannah are the only two children that will live to adulthood. Did the Arnold family endure additional troubles prior to the deaths of Mary and Elizabeth? Yes, they did. The elder Benedict Arnold saw his business decline rapidly. But internally, his problems regarding alcohol consumption became more rampant, or I should say destructive. And I'll tell you this much right now. It's easy to think of uh, alcoholism as being a problem only in the 19th and 20th centuries and in today's time. We should be reminded that, folks, that even in the 18th century in colonial America, alcoholism was an issue. Although Captain Arnold uh, did contract diphtheria, he recovered. But yet he saw. But yet, two daughters succumbed to this disease, which I cannot. I mean, I can't imagine what kind of a toll it would have taken on the elder Arnold, or I should say, Captain Arnold. And I can imagine that that there would have been a side to him who would never have gotten over this. But in the midst of a terrible. Um, in the midst of such terrible circumstances like this, Captain Arnold went to other extremes. Not only did he, con not only did he uh, continue to abuse alcohol, 
but he abandoned God in prayer as a means of comfort in, in a terrible time of sorrow. So he resorted to the bottle, or rather I should say glass, filled with liquid, alcohol, whose consequences ultimately led the captain to no longer lead or set good examples, including the inability behind supporting his family financially short and long term. What a tragic undoing that's about to unfold here. Let's get a little bit of a history, folks, about the um, matter behind alcohol in the Connecticut colony and how uh, legislators tried to modify this problem. Had the issue regarding alcohol consumption been known to be a serious problem in colonial Connecticut for some time? Yes, the Connecticut Assembly dealt with drinking, dealt with the drinking issue multiple times. Well, the Connecticut Assembly enacted laws whose purposes sought to punish acts of drunkenness, including habitual drinking. In the years of 1650 and 1709, the Connecticut Assembly passed laws punishing drunkenness with a 10-shilling fine, and 10 shillings is the equivalent to, in, in, in pounds, it's a half of, half of one pound. 1716, the Connecticut colony required magistrates, being civil officers, to list the names of regular tavern visitors on the doors of every tavern in town. It was done as a measure to implement public shaming, a.k.a. humiliation. Frequent tavern visitor entering the tavern was fined either 20 shillings or forced to sit in the stocks where person or persons got tied to boards around their ankles and wrists. You know, it's one thing to go into a tavern and perhaps have a fine meal or have a beverage, but to be constantly going into a tavern day in and day out and to be drinking, that ought to be seen as a red flag, folks. I can tell you this much. In colonial Virginia, if, if you were dealing with individuals who, had pump, who were dealing with, if it pertained to public drunkenness or drunkenness in general, the first measure to curtail the problem would have meant uh, the individual meeting with his uh, parishioner that is, his head uh, vestry person within the Anglican Church, given that the Anglican Church was the uh, leading church of Virginia. If that didn't work and the uh, individual committed another offense, then he was sent to uh, the pillory, uh, where his uh, head and arms would be, um, where he would be forced to um, squat down and have his head out and his arms out, but, but be sitting in an uncomfortable position for the entire day where uh, spectators could probably um, throw things at him as a means of letting him know that he has uh, disgraced his community. Happened a third time, uh, he was expelled. So obviously each colony had its own ways to go about uh, combating uh, drunkenness. Colonial taverns, believe it or not, folks, were intended to be near a place of worship, being that of a church. The measure was uh, there was a reason for this because the measure was intended to monitor 
the, those uh, within the greater community as a means of uh, regularly uh, watching who was uh, frequenting the facilities. If you saw someone frequent, frequenting a tavern day in and day out, that ought to be a red flag. But it, because it's one thing to go to a tavern for business affairs and have your dinner, but if you're going there every night as a means of having a beverage, that ought to be a warning. In other words, by having a beverage day in and day out, you could be uh, not only embarrassing yourself, but embarrassing the greater community as a whole. Well, for um, Captain Arnold, his alcoholism matters not only had the means to uh, ruin his shipping business, but bring public disgrace amongst himself and his family. Things didn't get any better. By 1754, young Benedict Arnold, he's still enrolled at school in Canterbury, but as 1754 ended and 1755 began, Captain and Mrs. Arnold no longer had the money to pay for young Benedict's schooling. College education at nearby Yale College in the near future is now vanished. It's, it's gone. 14-year-old Benedict Arnold now, faced, now has the potential to face embarrassment of being forced to leave school and return to Norwich, knowing his return would be public for the entire community. In other words, they're not going to say to young Benedict, we're so sorry about what happened with, with regards to what's happened to your father. No, this community is going to frown. I hate to say this, but they're going to frown upon young Benedict. Now they're going to be thinking, what is this young fellow now going to be able to make, make, make for himself? Or what is he going to be able to do in terms of uh, making a name for his, not only for his own sake, but how can he uh, make something of himself knowing that his father has not only disgraced the family, but embarrassed the community. And we'll talk more in the next uh, podcast segment about why it was such a big deal for um, for uh, embarrassment of, on this level. I don't think even the slightest degree of embarrassment would have gone unnoticed, but, but to engage in actions such as uh, drunkenness and consumption of alcohol to the point where in the case of Captain Benedict Arnold, he has everything, but now all of a sudden he's on the verge of losing it all. And of course, back then, there's no such thing as Chapter 7, Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Benedict Arnold's uh, ancestral roots date back to 1636 when his great-great-grandfather arrived to the Massachusetts Bay Colony with his family from England and his great-great-grandfather just so happened to be named Benedict Arnold as well. And that, and his great-great-grandfather had ties to uh, Roger Williams, whom was the uh, leading founder of the Rhode Island Colony. As for young Benedict's grandfather, he was a respectable farmer, but didn't have much to give to his six children, being one of them as Captain Arnold. Captain Arnold's downfall meant he could not give his only surviving son what he deserved. A continuing, um, a continuing advancement of education by going on to Yale College, including other greater aspirations. Young Benedict is now faced with the realization he'll have to earn his personal honor himself 
by going above and beyond to erase the current state of public of public disgrace brought on by his own father. So in other words, Benedict Arnold now has, is going to have to uh, make some life-altering decisions. I mean, do I sit back on the couch and have a pity party and feel sorry for myself? But how am I going to be able to go about modifying all these wrongs that my father has committed and be able to uh, give our family the recognition that it deserves? Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment episode, and I look forward to being back on the air, as always. And the next time I'm on the air, we're going to learn more about why it was such a big deal with uh, regards to um, how the greater Norwich uh, Connecticut community responded to these acts of um, what I would think of as back then as um, behavior that was risque with the drunkenness. Of course, in today's unstable societies, not to get political, it would be nothing. But back then it was a big deal and how uh, one person's actions could set the whole town um, ablaze with gossip. And so not only will we learn about that, but we will also learn about how young Benedict Arnold is impacted by what will soon become the uh, French and Indian War, a.k.a. the Seven Years' War. Perhaps he might be getting his first exposure to uh, seeing the... um, to seeing the seeds of uh, of what he, along with uh, countless other um, English uh, subjects being in the colonies, would have assumed that the uh, relations between uh, England and her 13 uh, colonies would continuously remain intact even after the French and Indian War ends. But we will need to learn how Benedict, young Benedict Arnold responds to the... Um, to the aftermath of the Seven Years' War and what his atti- what his earliest uh, attitudes uh, behind England are following the outcome of the war. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you guys. Uh, thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I, I don't know where I would be, but you all have really um, helped make um, a big difference. So continue to do what you all do by listening, but also get this word out because... Uh, Without, without you all, I wouldn't have the results that I have. Take, take care for now, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe, and God bless all of you.